us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from this portion of your gracious word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning. Um, I am a church planter. Uh, Again, I planted a church in northeast Tennessee, in Johnson City, Tennessee, several years ago, and uh, the Lord has called us back to the blessing and grace of church planting in the Lake Nona community of Orlando. We've just arrived about four months ago, so we're getting uh, used to to Florida and used to living uh, in Orlando. Uh, We're also getting used to a growing family. My wife and I have three children, uh, two through the, the grace and blessing of adoption, an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old. And last fall, my eight-year-old, who was then seven, uh, asked his mother uh, for a baby brother or baby sister. And she, uh, very much like uh, a few women in the Old Testament, laughed in the New Testament and said, well, buddy, uh, you better pray because we're not going to adopt again and mommy can't get pregnant. And about six weeks later, we had to tell him that we were expecting a baby. And we said, have you been praying? And he said, yep. So um, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary in June. And our first biological child was born on July the 24th. So we are very blessed, just deeply humbled at God's mercy and grace to us. Uh, and we are tired and in need of sleep. Um, so that, that is my excuse for anything I say in the next minutes that, um, that might sound uh, scandalous or uh, heretical. God forbid. Uh, we are blessed with a new baby. So, uh, yes, Elizabeth Ann uh, Lizzie was born July 24th. And, and uh, we are deeply, deeply blessed people. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to open this portion of God's Word for us this morning because it has uh, good news for me, and I hope it will be good news uh, for you also. Uh, We live in a culture where I think the prevailing belief uh, about spiritual things, if there is one, uh, would be uh, that they are pretty much all the same. All the religions are pretty much the same, and therefore, whichever one that you would like to choose or none of them uh, is completely up to you. Good for you. Uh, If you would like to pursue Christianity, well, that's great. If you'd like to be uh, a Buddhist, well, that's wonderful. I'm glad you're interested in spiritual things. We've sort of put uh, spiritual things in one lump and category, uh, and the prevailing commonly assumed Uh, belief in our culture is it really doesn't matter which one you choose. If it works for you, if you feel like it makes your life better, well then good for you. But as a people of this book, the Bible, uh, that is not what we believe. We don't believe 
that all religions are essentially the same. We believe that the glorious gospel of grace in Jesus Christ is fundamentally and categorically other. It is different. And that's, depending on who you talk to, perhaps your friends or your neighbors or folks in your family or co-workers or perhaps some of you this morning, that in itself is a pretty scandalous statement. But I want us to see wonderfully from God's word why the gospel is different and how it is different. And I think we can see that from Titus chapter 2 this morning. Paul is telling us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people. He makes it clear that this grace uh, is for a myriad of different kinds of people. And in the book of Titus, in this letter already, he has referred to many of them. Older men, chapter 2 and verse 2. Older women, chapter 2 and verse 3. Young women, chapter 2 and verse 4. Young men. Chapter 2 and verse 6. Pastors, slaves. Paul is excited to tell God's people that God's grace has appeared and it brings salvation for all kinds of people. It is because of the epiphany of God's grace, the appearing of God's grace, that we have been converted from one way of life to another. Now, Paul says much the same thing. He crystallizes it, I think, so clearly in Colossians 1.13, where he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And writing to the church at Ephesus, he talks about it, this conversion from one way of life to another with respect to, to walking, with how we live. And so in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He says later in 4.17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Chapter 5 and verse 1, walk in love. Chapter 5 and verse 8, you're to walk as children of light. Paul does not shrink from calling us to a new kind of life, a different life, because the grace of God has appeared. James perhaps puts it most bluntly, James chapter 2 and verse 17, when he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to a new way of life. And, just as importantly, it is the gospel that trains us to live this new life. That's what we want to unpack and see here in Titus 2. The gospel calls us to a new way of life and it is the gospel that trains us to live this new life. Well, let's start by looking at the new life that we're called to live Again, Paul says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation and it trains us, it instructs us, it disciplines us in how we are to live. Verse 12, he says it trains us to renounce ungodliness. The word refers to both our thoughts and our deeds. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And really the word is over passions. It's not that Christians are called to be passionless. We're called to be appropriately passionate and therefore not idolatrously passionate. And yes, salvation by the sheer grace of God trains us to say no 
to renounce ungodly passion, ungodliness and worldly passions. How, do, how does the grace of God train us to say no? How does free, sheer grace train us to say no? Hold that thought. We're not there yet. Trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives in the present age. The word self-control uh, literally could be translated wisely. It trains us to live wisely. It's a vertical orientation, wisely with respect to God himself. That is, we're to live with the appropriate posture of the creature in relationship to our creator. Not trying to take and grasp for ourselves whatever we want, but living in dependence on our creator God. We're to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age. That is justly. We're to live justly. It's a horizontal orientation. So this new life that the gospel calls us to, has, it calls us to a new life vertically, to live appropriately in, re, in response to the God that, who created us and gives us life and breath and everything. And it calls us to live justly, upright lives with respect to how we treat one another. Again, Paul put it this way when he wrote to the church at Philippi. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Verse 12 is just packed, isn't it? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is, we're to live in the present age consistent with what we believe. In verse 14, he says we are to be a people zealous for good works. That is, not resentful of even being asked to do them. Not as though we look at the commands of God as, as inconvenient to us. But zealous for good works. Our identity as those who have received the grace of God, calls us to a new kind of life. I am really a, um, a Lord of the Rings geek, I have to tell you. I've read it more times. I quit counting a long time ago, and I quit counting at a really high number how many times I've read the book. And I just love it. And I love uh, all the characters. I love the stories. One of the stories that I think fits with this idea of being, being called to a new kind of life, being, being called from one life to another, is when the really irrepressible hobbit, Pippin, who's always getting into trouble, always going off and doing his own thing, when he just shockingly, when he meets the Lord Denethor, the steward of the kingdom of Gondor, he offers him his sword He offers him his life. And it's pretty clear as you read it. He doesn't even know very well exactly what he's doing. He wants to respond to this Lord because he recognizes that he owes him in some regard. And so he gives him his sword. And it is his mentor, Gandalf, of course, who has to explain to him later that you're now a man of Gondor. You can't come and go as you please. You will have... A new kind of life because you have yielded yourself to a new Lord. 
the gospel. Receiving the gospel is all about yielding ourselves to a new Lord that is not us. And it calls us to a new life. But you know what? We fail to live it consistently, don't we? We're broken. I hear this verse call to me and say that it is the grace of God that has appeared that trains me to renounce ungodliness. And I have to confess that I don't consistently renounce ungodliness. Do you? And I don't consistently, every single time without fail, I don't always renounce worldly passions. Do you? I still struggle with self-control. Don't you? I'd like to think that my life is consistently upright and just with respect to those around me. But it's not always every moment of every day is yours. And we need training. We need training not just in what to do to live this new life. We need training in how. How to go about it. There are some things that we know. One of them is that apathy is just not acceptable. It's just not. We can't read the commands of Scripture as those who believe in the one true and living holy God and in His Son who came for us, who lived for us and died and has been risen to life, the Lord of heaven and earth. We cannot read His commands and just say, well, this is just the way God made me. Or perhaps if that's not the way we answer, is the answer uh, what has perhaps commonly been called at times Nike Christianity? You just do it. These are the commands of God. Church, just do it. Buck up. If you need to try harder, then try harder. Is that the way the scriptures speak to us? Now, we know, I think, that the right answer is no. That is not the way the Scriptures motivate us to obey the commands of God. But I'm afraid that that is probably the counterfeit means that we fall to the most. Jonathan Edwards believed this and wrote about it many years ago, and now he has been really translated from his English into English the rest of us can understand a little easier by our contemporary, uh, Jonathan Edwards perhaps, and Tim Keller, in saying that what we most naturally do to try to get ourselves, if we feel the obligation of the commands of God, the way that we try to get ourselves to obey the commands of God, is we stir up within ourselves fear and pride. As the means, as the motivation by which we will seek to obey the commands of God. Maybe this is what it looks like. When you're driving, maybe it's out here on US 1, minding your own business. And someone just pulls right out in front of you, didn't see you at all. And then they go 20 miles an hour. And you lose it 
I'm sure that's never happened to any of you. But but just imagine that you just lose it. You lose your temper. How are we to respond? I'm afraid that internally this is the way we respond. Stop it. Bad Christian. That's not the way I'm supposed to behave. Or maybe we say to ourselves, what would other people think of me? What's the motivation? It's pride. Or perhaps whatever it is that we fall to, the way we respond and talk to ourselves is, think of all the terrible things that will happen to you if you don't stop it. What's the motivation? It's fear. And say, I recognize as a parent, this is often the way I talk to my children. And I don't want to. But it, it reveals that that's the way I talk to myself. What would other people think of you? You better stop or bad things are going to happen. You ever heard this one? You'll hate yourself in the morning. You ever heard that one? Again, it plays on our pride. Or maybe it's it, it, the motivator a lot of times is simply you'll get caught. It's fear. We use this sort of training to pursue the Christian life. And then when bad things happen, we get mad at God and or we're filled with self-loathing. Because we feel like we failed and now God has gotten us and we want to throw it all away. And we wonder why more and more people don't want to become Christians. Friends, unbelievers see that we go about life the same way they do. Our reliance on fear and pride reveals the reality that we're still trying to be our own Lord and our own Savior. And the reality is that fear and pride just won't work. Because they don't change the fundamental self-centeredness of the heart. We're striving to obey for our own sake, not for God's sake. And when the pressure comes, it blows up. Even with respect to repentance. It often seems as though we're just sorry that we did bad things. And friends, unbelievers are too. When the, when the consequences are unpleasant, unbelievers are sorry they did bad things too. I want to suggest to you that Jesus and the scriptures never seek to motivate us with fear and pride. Ultimately, the scriptures call us to be trained by grace. Do you see now why Paul is making this point that it is grace that trains us for this new life? The Pharisees taught people to say no to ungodliness. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, if you have your Bible, you can look down there. Look at what he says. He includes himself. He's speaking of himself. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But Paul was an incredibly moral person. He was very religious. He read his Bible. He went to church. Do you see the difference? Lots of other religions. 
And simply moral people would agree that we should be trained to do and not do similar things. Which, again, is why they don't understand when we tell them they need to become Christians. You can be very confident at what we in the church would even describe as spiritual disciplines. And be just as far away from God as the person who ever thinks about spiritual things at all. The motivation is everything. Regardless of what label you put on it, even Christianity, if functionally you're being trained by fear, then when you fail, you're going to be devastated. And if functionally you're being trained by your pride, then when you fail, you will be devastated. But if functionally we can be trained by grace, then when we fail, it can make us more humble, more thankful, more zealous for good works. Because being trained by grace is going to lead us to be more flat out, head over heels in love with Jesus because of who he is and what he has done for us. Look at verse 13. Because we're trained to live this life, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. It trains us to live this life. And then in verse 13, he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. When you fail Jesus, you get more grace. Because he gave himself for you that you might be redeemed. That is purchased, bought, forgiven. All the record of sin attributed to you, wiped away. And not just forgiven, but purified. Paul goes on to say the same thing again down in in chapter 3. After he's talked about the way he used to live. He says in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us so richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us because of his mercy so that we could be justified by grace. That is, we could receive forgiveness from him and righteousness. And together, they are the glorious gospel of grace. But we need we we get both of them. Don't miss that we get both of them, forgiveness and righteousness. And together they become this incredible, dazzling, stunning gift of God's grace. Do you know how good it is to get both forgiveness and righteousness? For those of you who are married, again, just you know, imagine with me you're in an argument with your spouse. At the end of the argument, know, I know it's hard, just imagine Imagine you're in an argument with your spouse. At the end of the argument, would you rather be forgiven or right? A 
the gospel gives us forgiveness, which is wonderful, which we need. It gives us righteousness too. Jesus makes us right. He purifies us. He justifies us by His grace. The gospel of grace is a because of faith. Understand me? Not a so that faith. This glorious gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, that through faith in Jesus we get forgiveness and righteousness, is a because of faith. Then we're called to, different, to a different life because of Jesus. It's not a so that faith. We're not called to live this different life so that God might accept us. You understand the difference? We're not called to live a different life so that God might accept us. We're called to, different, to live a different life because the grace of God has appeared to us in Jesus. The grace that God, through the person of Jesus, redeems us and purifies us, that He justifies us by His grace. And that grace trains us to say, no, yes, not so that life will be easy, the more obedient we are, so that life will be easy and more comfortable. Because the reality of life in a broken world is that it won't always. It's not so that we will get to the place where we get it right in this life. Because we never will perfectly and completely. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. It's out of gratitude for him because of the attractiveness of who he is and what he has done. This is the training that allows us to be zealous for the life God calls us to, even when we fail and even when life is painful and difficult. I attended Covenant Seminary in St. Louis and one of my professors there, Dr. David Calhoun, um, made a striking impression on me and on, on the rest of the student body while we were there because we got to be his students, uh, the folks who were students with me and, and since then until he retired, uh, while he was at the same time battling cancer. And his faith while battling cancer probably made more of an impression on us uh, than his teaching us church history. Because he showed us how to live this different sort of life, not so that God would accept him, but because of God's grace. This is the way he lived, and it certainly is what he taught us. And in one sermon of his, uh, which has now been printed and I've listened to and read now many times, he tells the story of George Matheson. Uh, George Matheson is a hymn writer and a pastor. Uh, who late in his educational life uh, lost his sight and became blind. And then 17 years after uh, going blind, had fallen in love with a woman and had asked for her hand in marriage. And as best we can surmise, uh, she would not agree to marry him, at least in part because he was blind. And out of that ache, he wrote a hymn. He says, I was suffering from extreme mental distress 
and the hymn was the fruit of pain. It's a hymn in our hymnals that begins this way, O love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. But the third stanza in our hymnals is not the way Matheson wrote it. The third stanza in our hymnals reads this way. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. That's not what George Matheson wrote exactly. This is what he wrote. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I climb the rainbow in the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. This is how Dr. Calhoun explained the difference. He says, you see, of course, the great difference. You understand what was lost. It is one thing to be safe in a safe and secure place and to trace the rainbow through the rain. It is another thing altogether to be out in the storm, as Matheson was. He was not sitting by the window in a cozy house. He was out in the greatest storm of his life. Oh, God, he was out in the storm. And the storm hit him with full force and the rain mingled with his tears as they ran down his cheeks. But he was not overwhelmed because he saw the sure promises of God. When he could not see anything else, the blind poet saw as never before the spiritual and the invisible. He saw the rainbow. He saw it not as something interesting and beautiful. He saw it as something real. He saw it as a promise of mercy and he believed the promise. That is why he wrote the line that the hymnal committee felt was a bit too fanciful and they later changed. He was not safely inside tracing the rainbow through the rain. He was in the storm, stumbling on, groping for something to hold. And he felt that his only hope was to touch the rainbow with his fumbling fingers and to take hold and climb. Friends, there are two ways in which we can approach the grace of God. We can, uh, as in the version the hymnal committee put in our hymn books, trace the rainbow through the rain. That is, we can read about it, memorize it, copy the words of God, God's grace in beautiful letters and frame them perhaps and put them in our homes. But we may come far short of actually grasping it, believing it, casting ourselves upon it. The other way is Matheson's way. We can believe that God's grace is no less real than God himself. We can boldly reach out in faith and take hold of God's grace and grip it and grasp it and be trained by it. And never let go. And climb. Friends, the grace of God has appeared to us. And it is grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, though we do it in weakness and brokenness, grasping on to more and more grace as we seek to climb the rainbows of life, as we seek to climb the rainbows of God's grace through the storms of life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your gracious word. I thank you that even when you command us to live a different life, you command us 
to be trained by your grace to live that life. That grace that we receive and see most clearly in the Lord Jesus, who came for us, who gave himself for us to redeem us and purify us, to justify us by his grace, to give us forgiveness and righteousness for nothing, for nothing but faith. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, would you apply this good word to our hearts and minds by the power of your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.